0: I will worship you. I will worship you. Praise to the Lord on high. I will worship you. I will worship you.
1: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to. Good morning, welcome to it to DeWitt E Free, both here and online. We appreciate you being here, to morning this morning for our our service. Can we get those two mics? Sorry for that, but we just welcome you, and in your bulletin, just you can check in that there's. A listing of things going on in their church for the week or through the week upcoming. Uh, just a special note, a week from today, a week from yesterday, next Saturday, is the ski trip. So if there's any interest in that, and just to remind you, that if you have signed up for that, that's a week from yesterday. And also, uh, the, there's a men's study group uh, with the uh, Simeon Tr- Trust, the sign-ups upstairs, and that starts a week from this coming Thursday. I think it's the 23rd, so... The men, you can look at that and check on that. Um, The one thing I forgot right away is in in your bulletin also is a connection card. So if there is any prayer requests, if you're new, first-time visitor, second, just so we can kind of make a connection and know you and help you to know who we are, there's a connection card in there. Fill that out. Just put it in the offering box as you leave, and that will be very helpful. We appreciate that. This morning, we also have, um, in our church, prayer is very important. We see prayer as not just necessary, but vital. It's vital for us in communicating with God, not, just, not also just individually, but as a church body. And that's what we're going to do here this morning. We regularly spend time in prayer and praise. There's a number of things that happen to us and to those in our in our body, and we want to lift that up in prayer and take that time now. I have a couple gentlemen out here with microphones, so if you have something that you could, we want to lift to to God in prayer as a group, as a corporate uh, group of believers. We ask that uh, you can just raise your hand. <clears throat> Interesting in the first in Genesis is probably the first time when it's noted that prayer happens in chapter three. Um, and it's interesting that God was the one who spoke first. Sometimes we go to prayer and we think, you know, we got to lay it online, we got to lay it all out what we want and know about God. But very often, He's the one speaking to our heart all the time. He speaks to us, He's just yearning for a response. So let's not, right, right now, let's take that time to offer a response and, and request and praise to God, so if you have anything, feel free to raise your hand, and Dale's over here, and Larry's over here, he can get the mic to you.
2: Hey, Brian, I do have a uh, praise, though. Um, so some some may know, but a couple, in fact, two weeks today, um, I was uh, coming back from our Princeton farm, and I rolled our uh, snowplow truck, and no, I did not have my seatbelt on, so for everybody that's giving me grief about that, um, but I did roll it one and a half times, and to walk away of that accident with no cuts, scrapes, bruises, broken bones, anything like, it, is just a testament that God had His hand on me and keeping me in that cab and not flung around. So I want to thank Him for that. Amen. Amen.
1: There are a number of things just to bring to mind in our in our. Church family here. There's number. There's more than a couple of families that have uh, dealing with loss of family members. Uh, the Je- Jepsons, um, Ralph and Sarah. Ralph's mother. You know, they. I think they left yesterday to head to California for that, in preparation for that. So uh, keep them and the girls, Catherine and um, and uh, Elizabeth, in their in our prayers. In the, as that comes up. And then Craig in, in the passing of his mother. So, anything else? Um, if you would, uh, just this week,
3: pray for our leadership. We're going to be getting together on Friday and Saturday for our retreat. We
1: will be doing planning for uh, our church body. We like to get together and do retreats. But if you would, just pray for all the leadership as we have a chance to gather together and and uh, meet and pray and, and also just plan. Great. Thanks, Doc.
0: My mom, uh, Jean, is not feeling well today, so just recovery from cough and cold. <clears throat> She'd get feeling better. And then uh, my uncle put himself on hospice. Uh, he's going to be 95 in May, whether that's in heaven or on earth. But he's ready for his home going if that's the, if God's calling him. Thanks, um,
3: The Crossroad Baptist Church in Mount Joy lost their pastor Thursday, um, Pastor David Wellman. He had a stroke, a bad stroke a week earlier. So be in prayer for his family and that church. And the, my children go to school there. They'll miss his high-fives every day there mm. and watching him give his wife a hug. So.
1: Pray for Pam. Pam? Yes. She's sick. Yeah. She's been sick
3: for three weeks.
1: Yeah. She's what?
3: She's been sick for three weeks. Three weeks, weeks now. Um, our son Eric Schmidt uh, had a bone biopsy done. We haven't got the results yet, but he, you know, it'll probably be a some sort of leukemia or lymphatic cancer. So, just prayers for him and what he's going to go through, and for his salvation. Thank you.
1: Blaine, excuse me. Good morning, church.
3: I'm Charles. Um, I've got a praise and a prayer. Um, as you know, I, I do some missionary work over in Africa, and so I've been. We never had an office here in the United States, so um, the house next door to mine foreclosed six years ago. So I've been working on that steadily for six years, and Karen and I finally moved in last night uh-huh. or yesterday or the day before. Right. And so we're praising God for that, and so we hope to continue to bring people over from Africa. Hopefully we'll get over there this summer again to reboot our ministry over there. And the big prayer for us would be, um, my good thing um, is going to have surgery tomorrow. Uh, she's having rotator cuff tear surgery, and so those things can get involved with recovery and stuff. So appreciate prayer right. for
1: Karen. Will do. I'd like to <clears throat> have prayer for Dick, Dick Keeney, who passed away in <clears throat> Miles, Iowa. He had a heart attack, too. Well, showings today starts today at 2 o'clock. We'll lift up Miles Elementary School. We'll lift up Dick's family. Thank you. Clementine? Larry? Clementine? Just want to pray God and um, just thank him and help uh, for the other he happy for my family for everybody at home my alive and uh, and just ask him to try to ask, make me follow him every day and uh, change my heart with the way he want me to be every day with my family and uh, my country and help the country to come peaceful and uh, just tell him thank you and uh, appreciate what Happy put on my life every day and just praise him every day. Thank you. Clementine, you should be up here right now. <laughs> <laughs> just, uh, yeah, that's wonderful. Amen.
3: Uh, many in this community are familiar with Patricia Henrikson, Patty Henrikson. She was administrator at the DeWitt schools and also was the director of the Community Foundation. Uh, her 47-year-old son, the picture of health, was swimming, got out of the pool, and died of a massive heart attack. It's been really, really rough for Patty because she lost her husband when he was in his 40s as well. So uh, if we could just surround her with prayer, I know she would appreciate that very much. So it's Patty Henrickson. I was with my brother, Andy, this week, and he has a lot of problems, and he said it was okay if, if we all prayed for him. So let's pray for Andy, Andy. he has health problems, he has problems with a, a divorce and kids, et cetera. I am uh, an aunt. My brother, Forrest Marks, and his wife down in Mississippi had their little girl on Wednesday, and her name's Nienna Elodie Marks. Wow.
1: Praise God. Floyd and Tina are grandparents. We have no loss of things that we have on our minds and our hearts to bring to God. So, with that, um, and I just mentioned before we do enter prayer after the service. Uh, and Dale were reminded also that in the room after you pass uh, where where uh, uh, Jeff and Angie are, and head into the door, the room to the left, Jared Eichoff will be in there. If you want to have prayer. Jared's more than willing to sit there and pray with you. Just go in the door to the left after you you know, go get into the hallway, and Jared will be there and uh, uh, available. If you, any, after the service you'd like to have prayer. But with that, let's go to prayer right now. Dear Heavenly Father, our heart aches. our hearts sometimes are filled with joy. Oftentimes we don't know what to even pray for. Cause it seems just as here, the many things were mentioned, how can we even remember them all, and consistently bring them to you? But we know that your word reminds us that when we don't know what to say, or even when we seem bogged down and just overwhelmed by what life throws at us, that your spirit speaks for us. It knows what's in our heart you know what's in our heart and this our spirit your spirit in us speaks of the groanings that are we're dealing with and the joy and the jubilation that we experience also that we don't often express so right now as a church body we just lift these things to you because we know you here. we know you're anxiously asking for us and speaking to us to speak to him right now we as a church lift these things to you and give glory and honor to you in Jesus name we pray amen
3: if you'd please stand psalm 62 verses 5 through 8 read my soul wait in silence for God only for my hope is from him He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. On God, my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. (laughs)
0: surrounds, and my heart grows faint within, when the darkness overwhelms, and my fears are pressing in, I will trust in you, O Lord, in the silence I will wait, I will stand upon your word, you're my solid rock my salvation my steadfast hope that won't be shaken my soul will wait my soul will wait for you you're my stronghold and my shield in the midst of every threat All the wicked never yield they will vanish like a breath Yes, I know the outcome's sure. Satan's evil plans will fail. In your power I'm secure. You're my solid rock and my salvation, my steadfast hope. I won't be shaken. My soul will wait. My soul will wait for you. You're my comfort when I feel forsaken, my refuge and my sure foundation. My soul will wait, my soul will wait for You. This is love I can't explain. This is mercy unreserved. Through your sacrifice so great. I have peace that's undeserved. For the battle has been won. And I fear no shame or loss. Now the sting of death is gone. You're my solid rock. And my salvation, my steadfast hope that won't be shaken my soul will wait my soul will wait for you you're my comfort when i feel forsaken my refuge and my sure foundation my soul will wait my soul will wait for you be Your words are wonderful we go you have the words of life the words the dark, Lord guard us from the lies, the enemy will speak, no guilt remains for those you have redeemed. stop.
4: chapter 7, 21 through 29. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. The winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for his teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes.
3: Please be seated.
5: Will you please pray with me? Oh, kids are going to go with Miss Abby today and Miss Haley. Blessing. Cindy said we had 17 kids in Sunday school last week. So, what a praise just to see God doing that work in their lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are so good. We thank you that you gave us your son. We thank you that by his wounds we have, been, we have been healed. We thank you that he died on the cross for our sins. We thank you for this magnificent plan of yours, a plan that, that uh, I'm sure shook the heavens. Uh, I'm sure that when the angels saw what you were about to do, when they witnessed what you did, when all the hosts of heaven... Beheld your plan and your works. Great was the praise. We thank you that you died in our that your son died in our place. We thank you for the salvation that you've given to us in him. And Father, as we come before you today, we pray that you'd help us to become more like him. We pray that as we encounter your word and get to know you better, we get to know your son better, I, I pray that we would learn to imitate him and be more like him. So please teach us as we come to Ezra today. It's in Jesus' name we ask, amen. I have a question for you. When you consider the life and ministry of Jesus, which we're not, we're not there yet, we've got a few more weeks before we're going to get to the New Testament, but when you consider the life of Jesus, and as you read through the Gospels, who would you say were probably the, the, the primary human opponents to our, our Lord and His ministry? What's one group or one uh, batch of people that comes to your mind? The Jews, the Romans, Pharisees? Yeah, probably the Pharisees, right? Some of the harshest words that Jesus spoke were were saved for the Pharisees, weren't they? Pharisees quickly come to my mind. Uh, They were some of Jesus' sharpest critics, and and indeed some of Jesus' sharpest rebukes were toward these leaders of Israel. These were some of the leaders among the, the common people. Uh, the Sadducees were among the, the priestly class and among some of the richest class. But the Pharisees were, were followed. They were well-liked by many of the people. They were seen as leaders. And, um, and they were some of the sharpest opponents of our Lord. And some of the words that he spoke to them uh, were some sharp rebukes. For example, Matthew 23, 27 to 28, Jesus said this to them. He said, woe to you, scribes, And Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Kind of a gentle little rebuke, right? Jesus, I believe, truly loved these people. You look at some of the sayings that he said to, to the Pharisees. You know, we sometimes read the sayings and what Jesus said to the Pharisees, and and we oftentimes kind of picture you know that he's speaking sarcastically, um, just because that's kind of the way we think. But some of these rebukes that Jesus had for the, the 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 Pharisees, some of them were were harsh because they had continued to reject him over and over and over again. But some of the earlier things that that Jesus said to the Pharisees, I, I believe that many of those sayings were actually. Uh, all of them, including these rebukes, were an effort to to love these individuals and to draw them to himself and to teach them who he was. In fact, some of them, like Joseph, um, who who gave him his tomb, and Nicodemus uh, actually came to believe in Jesus. But um, he adopted some of their their teaching methods, and he approached them, kind of like when the blind needed help. What did he do? He, He touched their eyes. When the deaf couldn't hear what he said but he came and he healed them what did he do put his hands on their ears he, he connected with people in their in their own need and i think he did the same thing with the pharisees some of the things that he says to the pharisees were pharisees were actually their their uh, their rabbinical teachings their styles and and he drove them back to the word of god to say what does the scripture say you need to look at the scripture and and he, and he spoke to them in a way that that he appealed to their methods and uh And he called them to look back at the word of God. But what if I were to tell you that the Pharisees had a rich history filled with many faithful individuals who loved the Lord and desired to serve him with with all their heart? Would that surprise you? That's not how we think of the Pharisees, is it? Because we, well, with this picture that we have the Pharisees, you know, they, when we, you and I consider them, this picture in our mind is of these adversaries against Christ, some of the ones that called out for his crucifixion, that opposed him in his ministry. These were the arch, arch enemies of the Lord's. They were most often, they become the paradigm within sermons of how not to live, right? However, it wasn't always that way. Early on, Early sources reveal that their movement began a few centuries before Christ, during the Greek Empire. In fact, much of their roots may have actually come from the ministry of Ezra. Uh, Ezra didn't found the Pharisees, but, but the work that he did that we're going to look at today uh, led to a movement that, that eventually became the Pharisees. Israel's history was filled with idolatry and disobedience, and it was the Pharisees that said, we're never going to go back there again. All the idolatry that was a part of our history for centuries, that's not where we're going to go. We're going to pursue righteousness. We're not going to repeat the mistakes of the past that led to the exile of the Jews. These were the men that, if you were to stand beside them today, these were the people that probably would sound a lot like us. They would have been the people that said, We need to get back to the Bible. We need to get to sound the orthodox theology. We need to, to look at what God says and we need to follow His instructions and pursue righteousness. A lot of the truisms and the things that we say in our churches that are, are true but sometimes followed in the wrong manner would have been the same things that they would have said, I'm right with you on this. These were men who stood firm and they refused to compromise the truth. It was during the Hasmonean period that the Pharisees were were persecuted. They said, we're not going to compromise. And and it was to such an extent that their political leaders of their day opposed the Pharisees and, and refused to listen to their call to come back to the Word of God. And in their opposition to the Pharisees, they took the Pharisees' family and they murdered them right in front of them, and then they crucified over 100 Pharisees along the road because they refused to bow to the leaders of their day. That's not the Pharisees that we know from the New Testament, is it? You see, these were men who stood firm many of them that pursued righteousness. They lived in a time of history where they refused to compromise and they they paid the price, often suffering persecution because of their devotion to what is right and true. The problem was, though, and this is a problem for us too and something that we need to guard ourselves against, The problem was that in their effort to chase after righteousness and to prevent the old mistakes, they created a whole new set of mistakes, didn't they? Which is what we see in the New Testament by the time that period of history comes. Eventually, their movement substituted their own righteousness for God's grace, which is the opposite of what God's Word teaches. And so in their effort to pursue righteousness and to be faithful to God's Word, they ended up distorting it because, well, they left out a part of the plan. In his book, Extreme Righteousness, Seeing Ourselves in the Pharisees, Tom Havastel, he wrote this. He said, the Pharisees were good people like us. They merged in reaction to Hellenism, the secular humanism of their day. In response to the pressures of cultural assimilation, they became the separated ones. Resisting the liberal drift of the priests and Levites, they insisted on Orthodox theology. Instead of falling headlong into cultural compromise and professional religion, they organized a lay-led, grassroots movement that returned Judaism to traditional values. In response to the official religious leaders' focus on temple rituals, they emphasized scriptural study and application. In response to creeping paganism, they increased their vigilance to be pure. The Pharisees of yesterday may have more in common with the Christian church and the parachurch activists today that meet the eye. The Pharisees were well-meaning religious people, he continues. However, it was their essential goodness and godliness that was part of the problem that they had with Jesus and he with them. The Pharisees received received such harsh treatment from Jesus, not because they were so far from the truth, but because they were so close. Well, we have three more weeks in the Old Testament that covers the centuries from, the century really, uh, about a hundred years from, from the period of Babylon and, and the exile um, to the end of the Old Testament. In, in Daniel, we, we discovered how the captivity in a foreign land had, it, it was part of God's plan and god reminded his people that that he is a god who wants to be with us and the exile was him bringing his people back even if he had to send them out of the land that he had promised to them you see god wants to be in relationship with his creation indeed god has a plan for accomplishing his promises he has a plan to accomplish his promises that started back in genesis right after the fall promises that he made to abraham promises that he made to david in Daniel chapter 9, we, we saw how in the upper story, God's sovereign work has never stopped, has it? God never came to the exile and went, oh man, I, I really messed this up, didn't I? He, he showed, this has been part of the plan all along. I've been telling you that the exile was going to come if you didn't follow me. And, and he shows us a glimpse in this amazing prophecy of what and, and how he is going to accomplish those promises that started all the way back at the beginning. So we're going to introduce our final key word that covers the last period of Old Testament history. This is word number 15 in our our, um, series. We're not going to review them today, but the the final key word for the Old Testament is return. You see, in Ezra, we discover the return home. Next week, we'll look at the book of Esther and see how God preserves his people in the midst of, of trials. And then we'll show how the rebuilding of Jerusalem came about in the time of Nehemiah and the prophet Malachi. But today we're briefly going to see how the exile came to an end, and, and, and then we're going to get an, a snapshot of one man whom the Bible describes as the, the good hand of his God was on him. A movement that began, that led to Pharisees, that eventually they lost sight of. And, and I'd like us to look at what the roots of that were that, that, made, uh, that caused God to uh, put his hand upon this ministry. Well, last week we saw how the 70 years for Babylon came to an end. When Daniel read the book of Jeremiah, uh, we saw Dan- Daniel responded, didn't he? He said, why aren't we going home? The 70 years for Babylon's over. How come we're still in exile? How come we're still in captivity? But then he read Jeremiah and he realized, we, we need to repent. We need to plead with our God to take us back to the land. And so he did that. And, and it, was, um, it was the year 539 B.C., The Persians had replaced the Babylonian Empire, and Daniel and his ministry led to God's people repenting and pleading their case before the Lord, and God heard them just like he promised. It was only a few months later, the beginning of the new year, that God was going to bring about his plan to bring them back. But the way that God brings them back is not what you and I would expect if we were writing the story. If I was writing the story, what would come next would probably begin with a great campaign when the people would overthrow their oppressors, they would fight for their freedom, you might have a horse riding back and forth in front of the armies, leading them in an inspiring speech and crying out freedom or something like that. That's how we would think of the story, right? Some great battle that takes place to overthrow their oppressors, the Persians. But the way that God brings them back is something a little bit different. God does something altogether different from what Israel had experienced over the last several centuries. Instead of the Jews having to pick up the sword, God does something different. He changes the heart of the king of Persia. Look at how the book of Ezra begins. In Ezra chapter 1 verse 1, we read this: In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Not the words you'd expect from a pagan king, are they? So just like that, the captivity ended. Daniel prayed. The people turned in repentance and pled before the Lord. And within just a few months, Cyrus comes up and he says, Hey, guys, here's what we're going to do. A little different from the Assyrians who beheaded people and stacked up their skulls on the roads. A little different from Babylon who put a hook through your nose and drug you off to a foreign kingdom. Cyrus comes along and he says, I'm going to send you home. I want you, to go and you want, I want you to build your temple. I want you to go back to your lands. And God uses Cyrus. God changes the heart of a king and, and the people have the freedom to return daniel repented in 539 at the beginning of the new year cyrus issues this proclamation and the first wave began that year under the leadership of three men uh, we hear of a guy named shesh bazar there's zerubbabel and he's the next governor and joshua uh, the next high priest joshua sounds like an old testament name that you're familiar with right you know joshua it's the same name of another guy we know named jesus yeshua um and so these were the three leaders that that led the people by the way uh curtis uh myers here right got some great names for you all right expecting this next week all right shesh bizarre i i can hear it now maybe not okay we tried um When the seventh month, in chapter 3, we read about this first group gathering in Jerusalem. And so so they make it there, they they come to the land, and and then we're told when the seventh month came, in chapter 3, verse 1, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Joshua the son of Josedak with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And so the captivity ended. The first exiles returned home, and the people were starting anew by by following God's word. We're told that over that next year, they laid the foundations for the temple. It was a little smaller than before. Some of the people wept because they remembered the days of Solomon and the temple that stood there. Many people rejoiced. But um, they laid the foundations for the temple. And in verse 11, it tells us, and they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to to, to Yahweh. And, And this next verse comes from the Psalms that they responded together. For he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised Yahweh because the foundation of the house of Yahweh was laid. So it was a good start, wasn't it? Encouraging? different from some of the failures we've seen over and over again however what's oftentimes oftentimes it's harder to harder than starting right is finishing well Have you found that you got good intentions at the beginning and you get excited about what you're doing and what god's doing and following that through though can be tough few are those who finish well and the jews found the same thing Over chapters 4 and 5, it reveals that the foreigners who were living around in in the land, remember what had happened when they got taken off into exile? Nebuchadnezzar put other people in the land. And so there are people that were living there that weren't Jews, that weren't of Israel, and they kind of started to like the land, and they didn't want the Jews to come back. And so when the Jews did return, and, and they started building a temple and doing things a little different than what they were used to over the last several decades, they started to oppose the building of the temple. They didn't want Jerusalem being rebuilt. Not only was there a, a human opposition to the plan, but, but we know that there's a spiritual battle that's taking place in the heavens. And In that spiritual battle, there's an enemy that also was opposing God's plan being accomplished. And so, the plans of the, the Jews were halted. The work stopped because people were discouraged. And that's where we, we're not going to cover them today, but... Um, that's where a couple of prophets come in. If you've read the book of Haggai, and there's also Zechariah, some more names for the... Haggai and Zechariah were raised up by God, and they came in and they encouraged the people to complete the work, and they did. In the end, it was about 20 years that go by. Over 20 years, they, they come to the end of chapter 6, and they finally completed the temple, So a wonderful time in the history of the jews a tough time they stuck with it after being discouraged and after stopping and they came back and they did what god called them to do now you would think in a book which is entitled ezra you think we might have met ezra by now right he's nowhere in the first six chapters where is this guy he's a little bit late isn't he well the first half of ezra takes place primarily under the leadership of zerubbabel and joshua the the governor and the priest with the prophets haggai and Zechariah, encouraging the people and those first six chapters cover about 23 years and focus on the rebuilding of the temple and then finally in chapter 7 we're introduced to a guy named ezra ezra is a, a priest he's skilled he's a skilled scribe in the law of moses and what might surprise you is that ezra probably wasn't born yet when the book of ezra began in fact, uh, Jewish tradition holds that he was a young man in his 20s when he led the second return back to Israel. And so, according to their chronology, he, he wasn't born yet when they finished the temple. He was probably still a youth when the temple was b- being completed or was born in those years soon after that. But almost 60 years takes place between the last verse of chapter 6 and the first verse of chapter 1. So there's a big gap. So read verses chapters 1 through 6 and think about Zerubbabel and Joshua and the Jews that came back in that first wave, but almost sixty years took place before the second wave of Jews comes comes back to, to Jerusalem. And while the first six chapters focus on the rebuilding of the temple, chapter chapters seven and ten focus on God's reformation of the people's hearts. And that's where Ezra comes in. As the chapter opens, we see that there's still a, a great many Jews that are living in Babylon. In fact, God had told them, Remember, build houses? give your children a marriage, plant your gardens because you're going to stay here a while. By the end of that period, guess what happened? So we kind of like it here. We're comfortable here. We built our houses. Our children got married here. And so a lot of the people stayed in Babylon. They stayed for centuries, even millennia. The last of the Jews left Babylon and and the nation of Iraq during our lifetime now. Well, this second wave was led by Ezra we're introduced to him in verse 6 of chapter 3 where God says this Ezra went up from Babylonia he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that Yahweh the God of Israel had given and the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of Yahweh his God was on him it's a beautiful phrase isn't it it's the first time we read that about Ezra here in this chapter the hand of the Lord was on Ezra isn't that something you'd like to say of yourself the hand of god was upon me the hand of god was upon my life and my ministry the things that that he led me to do there's something very special about this person about this ministry that you, the lord is going to bring about through him you know many of you have a, a life verse how many of you have a life verse it's kind of your go-to verse dot does happy birthday dot is dot the only one that has a life verse Many of us have a, a life verse that we go to, some of us, John three sixteen. some of us have others. Something has just been an encouragement to us throughout the decades. Uh, I'd like to share mine with you today. Uh, what I love about Ezra, this scribe, is that Ezra was the embodiment of a student of God's Word. We've already been told in verse 6 that the hand, the hand of the Lord was upon him. Uh, the text is preparing us for God to do something through this person. But then in verses 7 through 9, we find some very exciting chronological details about months and days and years and and regnal data for the king Artaxerxes. I mean, this is the stuff that historians bust at the seams for, and I'm sure you guys are going, ooh, let's read this. This is better than Leviticus. But let's read it because Ezra is going to set the context and because this is part of the inspired Word of God. In verse 7, it says... There went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers, and the temple servants, and Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for, here it is again, the good hand of his God was on him. Interesting. Interesting. A second time, the text notes, the hand of the Lord was upon him. In, in fact, this time it adds the word good. The good hand of his God was on him. Ezra was a leader of Israel, a teacher of the law, a student of the Old Testament. The significance of the timing, however, that we find here in verse 9 and some of these chronological details that, that you might kind of just gloss over, it's, it's very significant because there in verse 9, the first day of the first month, do you know what that meant? It was Passover. It was time for Passover. Passover was the celebration of the Jews leaving Egypt. The angel of the Lord had passed over the firstborn of Israel. Do you remember that story so long ago? It's been a whole 15 weeks or so that we've covered that. The Lord passed over the firstborn of Israel, and the next morning they walked out their doors, and they kept walking right out of the land of slavery. And now, several centuries later, there's a second exodus happening. And this time it's taking place when the Jews are walking out of their doors and they keep walking right out of Babylon, the land of their captivity. They traveled 500 miles and they arrived in Jerusalem exactly four months later. God's hand was on Ezra. But note the reason why God's good hand was on Ezra. And verse 10 is my life verse. This is the verse that's come to remind me of what god has called me to do Uh, my spiritual gift is teaching I, i love to teach i love to teach god's word and so naturally ezra ezra is one of my heroes even though he doesn't show up for half of the book but i love verse 10 and it has been a constant reminder to me not only of what i'm called to do as a teacher but also what every one of us is called to do to be every single one of us we are called to be students of god's word and we're told in verse 9 that the good hand of god was on him why was that well verse 10 tells us for ezra had set his heart to study the law of yahweh and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in israel let's talk for just a minute about what we mean when we talk about Bible study. We need to allow our lives, like Ezra, like so many who have come before us, you and I need to allow our lives to be saturated with Scripture, and to be familiar with the words of the Bible. But we also need to be involved in Bible study, the process of asking and answering questions about the text of Scripture. So what is Bible study? The first step of doing good Bible study, and I've laid this out before, even Before I review this often because I want you to get this system down. Three simple steps. Sometimes it's hard, sometimes it's complex, sometimes it takes a lot of time, but if you can consolidate your Bible study into these three steps, it's going to do wonders for your reading and study of God's Word. The first step of doing good Bible study is observation. Observation is, asks, what do I see? we we live in a grocery store culture that requires that we have everything now and i have a gazillion choices right don't you love being a part of that culture it's kind of convenient sometimes isn't it but we transfer that culture into so many different areas of our lives including the way we do bible study sometimes in second peter chapter one peter tells us in verse 20 he said that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. You hear that? No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. In other words, you can't just open the Bible and go, eh, I think it means this today, and tomorrow I think it means this. Or I have a a different point of view. You know, Matt and I are going to talk about it, and, well, Matt, your, your interpretation is just as good. You can believe what you want, I can believe what I want. Your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. Is that what 1 Peter, 2 Peter tells us? No, there's one interpretation. There's one interpretation that's true. Now, there are a lot of things that that are difficult to understand, and sometimes we do our best at seeking that interpretation, but there's only one interpretation to any given text, and and that is the meaning that was intended by the original author who was moved by the Holy Spirit. But too many people do Bible study like they're grocery shopping. And they think that that they can take the meaning off of the shelf and and they they get to uh, take the meaning that they want to choose rather than the meaning that God intended for that original audience. The observation step, it ensures that we take the time to really look at the passage, to dig deep and then to find these nuggets and go, okay, what do I have here? And this is where we can dig deep in the soil of the Word of God and mine the riches that are there. Uh, we've been mentioning that we have a, a men's discipleship group. Class is starting up on the 23rd. We have our Saturday morning Bible study that many of you are involved in. We're also going to have our, our every other Thursday night on the 23rd. We're going to start um, essentially doing this process. Uh, on Thursday nights, we're going to take what Ezra set his heart out to do. Uh, it, it's our goal to develop men who are better students of God's Word to develop leaders and, and teachers in our church that, that do what Ezra did. Observe, what does God's Word say? We don't just want to just develop teachers of God's Word, but we want to encourage us all to be better students of the Scripture, men who, who become better teachers because we are, the first, we are first sitting at the feet of our Lord and observing what He says. Good Bible study requires that we slow down to look at what the Bible actually says. An observation is, is the process of asking, what, what do I see? Okay, before I go on to the next slide, oh, it's there, sorry. I, I, I tried catching you, but she's, she's too fast for me. What's the next step? Interpretation, all right? Interpretation. Once I've taken the time to look and observe, then I can ask the question, all right, guys, those of you who want to Simeon Trust, we, we ask, what does it say? And the second thing was, what does it mean? Yeah, what's it, what's, what does it mean? Good observations should cause us to ask good questions, and good questions should cause us to look for the answers to those questions. Oftentimes, those questions are beyond our abilities, but, but that's how we grow and, and, and how we learn new methods for answering those questions. You, you may not have advanced methods in your tool bag, like understanding original languages or doing sentence diagramming, but just like a miner learns to use a pickaxe, or a shovel, each one of us should be able to learn how to use good Bible dictionaries, cross-references. It may take a little work. It may take a little bit more than just reading through a passage, but when, when there are gems and precious stones in God's Word that are ripe for the taking, that are just underneath the surface, don't you think that the eternal benefits are worth the effort? That leads us to the third step, okay, before we turn there. Ah, good job. What's the third step? we got observation, way of interpretation, Craig. Application. What does application mean? What do I see? What does it mean? Application is, I heard it. What do I do? What do I do? The third step of doing good Bible study is application. Application says, how, how does it work? What do I do? Because the text says and means this, what should I believe? You see, Bible study is not over until I have learned to take the nuggets of gold that I found and discover how I use them in my everyday life. So let's return back to Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, and see this work in this, this in process. Verse 9 told us that the good hand of Ezra's God was upon him. Again, why? Why did God bless Ezra's ministry in the way that he did? What what was unique about Ezra that brought that that uh, that God brought such an incredible spiritual fruit to this man's work? What was it that led to the reformation of people's hearts that took place over those next several years? I believe that it started with this. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. We're told that Ezra was determined. It, his heart was was firmly resolved. There were three things Ezra was determined to do. He had prepared himself for them. He had set his heart firmly on making sure that these three things happened. Have you ever set your heart on something? It can be anything. You ever set your heart on something? A dream, a championship, a career, a person. Well, Ezra was determined that he would do these three things. First, we're told he would study the law of the Lord. You see, Ezra was a trained scribe, but that doesn't mean that Bible study came easy for him. Bible study can be hard work. Bible study requires effort. It requires determination. It requires an additional layer of thought than just reading the text. We've discussed briefly what it means to make observations and interpretation, but the word that, that's used here means to inquire about something, to investigate. Basically, he's taking those first two processes, observation and interpretation, and, and he, he determined that, first of all, he was going to be a man, a teacher, who set his heart to study the law of the Lord. In 1848 there were fewer than 80 buildings in Sacramento. Can you believe that? Sacramento, California, this great city. 80 buildings. Not what you think of when you think of Sacramento, right? But then they found something. You know what they found in 1848? Yeah, gold. Somebody was down in the river, and they pulled out a rock and went, hey, cool, this thing shines. They found on the river's Gold. And when word got out, people came from all over the Western Hemisphere to find and search for treasures of a promise, of finding untold riches. They sold everything that they owned. They left everything that their, their ancestors had given them out east, and they, they went west. And Sacramento boomed, and soon it became a city of over 100,000 people. There were some who struck it rich, and there were some who just kept on searching. How much more do we have reason to do the same thing? Don't you have something of much more value that God has promised you if you're just willing to search for it, to go after it? Studying the Scripture is worthy of everything being left behind for the eternal investment that we make when we study this incredible book. Even if we just left behind our electronic devices and our TVs, For one extra hour every day. Just one hour. If we read our favorite novel just a little bit less, if we rose up in the morning just 30 minutes early, or took an occasional lunch break to open God's Word as we ate, Ezra set his heart to study this book. Shouldn't we, too? to be our passion, to know these words inside and out, to understand their meaning and to discover the vastness of the treasures that are found within. There's a second thing that Ezra did, isn't there? Not only did he study the law of the Lord, what's the second thing he did? I saw it. He, He did it. He did it. Ezra didn't just do it, he was determined to do it. This is the third step which we described a minute ago under what Bible study looks like. Doing it means applying it. Jesus said in John chapter 14 verse 21, he said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. You hear what Jesus said? If you love me, you'll apply my word to your life. You'll do it. You'll keep my commandments if you want to experience the good hand of God, of His blessing upon your life, upon your ministry, then not only do you need to be studying God's Word, you need to be obeying it. You see, once you've looked at what it says and you've discovered what it means, you have to ask yourself, what must I thank God for? What promise did He make here in this text that I need to claim and believe? What must I believe about what He said? How does what I read and how does what I studied today? How does that impact my relationships? How am I going to change? How am I going to look more like Jesus today as a result of what I just studied here? Bible study without application is like asking God for wisdom and then saying thank you as you walk away and you doubt whether God can really even deliver it. James tells us that the one who does this is double-minded and unstable. We've got to put it into practice. That's what Ezra set his heart on. But if you read the text, that's not where it ended, right? Ezra had one more step. He set his heart on teaching God's statutes and rules to Israel. Ezra wasn't satisfied with just studying God's word and obeying it. You see, he understood that Bible study is meant to change other people's lives as much as it changes me, that that I can't just hold it all in and keep it for myself. I need I need to let other people know what's in this book. And so whether it's sharing the gospel or teaching it in a public setting or just passing these truths on to our children, it's my responsibility to teach these things to others. I may not be a, you may not be a scribe like Ezra. You may not be a priest or pastor or an elder or a teacher in your church, but You have the responsibility and the privilege of studying God's word, of obeying it and doing it, and then passing it on to others in some way or another. Ezra was a teacher. So therefore, when he studied God's law, he set his heart on teaching what was in that law. For these Jews who had just returned to Jerusalem and for those who had already returned 60 years before Ezra would minister to them by communicating what God required of them. And for these people, most of them couldn't read. So you're already one step ahead of them, right? Most of you here can read or have the ability to learn to. For most of them, they couldn't read, and so it was required that someone else would read it to them and explain it. Ezra fulfilled his ministry. So let me just ask you, what's What's yours? What's the unique ministry that God has given to you? What are the spiritual gifts that God has invested into your life? Are you a teacher? Then fulfill your ministry. Teach faithfully what God has put before you to study and apply. Then pass those truths on to your students, to your audience. Are you an administrator? Is that your gift? then clearly plan and oversee that which God has explained in His Word. Don't, don't just say, well, I'm not a teacher. I'm not a teacher. I, I don't have a Sunday school class. I don't have a, a morning Bible study on Thursdays and Fridays and what, four in the morning. I don't know how you do that, Matt. All right? I, I don't get up in front of the pulpit and preach every Sunday. I don't have a Sunday school class. If, if that's you today, don't, don't use that as an excuse. If your gift is an administration, then study the law of the Lord. Study this book and do it and then take the principles and the things that you find here and lead more efficiently because of what you found in God's Word. Are you a musician? Then allow the Word of Christ to richly indwell you and then teach others with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs giving thanks to God our Father who we worship together. Allow God's word not only to transform you, but to transform your ministry, whatever it is. If it's encouragement, then let God's word change your life and then pass those things on to other people and encourage them with what God's word says. Let it be what clearly guides your ministry and let this, his, its principles lead you to carrying it out. As we finish this morning, I'd like to just challenge you with some practical steps. If if having the good hand of God upon your, your life sounds like a, a great thing, then here are just a, a few ways to jumpstart that process. First of all, read. Okay, just just start by reading. If 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 you struggle with it, just just crack open the Bible. Some some of us have not opened this book since last Sunday. You came to church and went, "Oh, cool! Look what I learned." You put your Bible down and you haven't read it since. Friends, this isn't healthy. It's not. Last Sunday, we had some great food put out for fellowship. You always enjoy that right after service. Some of you are thinking about it already, going, Will he just please finish so I can get back to some of those donuts? Had a great time of fellowship last time, but none of you skipped the next 20 meals. Not one of us, right? That's not healthy we come back on the next Sunday in order to have our next meal. So why would we do this with our spiritual health? We need as much nourishment from God's Word as we do from the food that we eat every day, even more so. Let us be those who read God's Word. If you're looking for something to read, we're doing a system right now. It's in your bulletin. It's on the the back of your sermon notes. Got two different plans for you. This week, just read through the book of Esther. Okay, if you're doing the, 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 um, the central themes pack, and you just want to kind of just go through the central core story of the Bible, okay, we'll just be reading as es- Esther, verse, chapters 1 through 10. If you're on the uh, whole Bible track, we're reading Zechariah and Ezra this week. So, great opportunity. You can pick up, you don't have to go all the way back and start Genesis if you haven't started with us. Just pick up where we're at right now. Some ideas for you to read. But second, let me, let me challenge you to pick a, a passage of Scripture. Just start studying. Look at Psalm chapter 119 and just start making observations. Write down the things that you find there and ask yourself, what, what does this mean? Another tool that's available to you. We have, we have small groups in our church. Love to get you involved in some of those. It's a great opportunity for studying God's Word together. Our Sunday school classes on Sunday mornings. We we don't put those there because it's a tradition that you know the Pharisees told us we have to keep on going. We we want people to learn. We want to study God's Word together. And so Matt has a class upstairs going through Matthew right now. Downstairs, we're studying the book of Acts. Come join us. It's a great opportunity to study the Scripture together. Um, Saturday mornings, men have a study. We have small groups. We've got Sunday school. Uh, once again, men, I'm going to ask you to pray about coming, uh, the upcoming men's discipleship class. Every other Thursday night, 7 o'clock to about 8.30. It's called First Principles. Uh, I'm going to require some work it's it's not going to be an easy class it's a doable class, it's not judges like we did at the last workshop but it's doable but there's going to be homework and and I'm going to push you I want you to learn, I want you to grow I want you to learn some of these first principles is what it's called and we're just going to learn to study the scripture together and so men this is a great opportunity for you to grow and to learn to study the scripture it's not just for teachers but I want you to pray about it I want you to pray about whether you should sign up and and commit to taking this step Ultimately, ultimately, all of this is about, this is an issue of reforming the heart. As we look at Ezra's ministry and the good hand of God that was upon him, the foundations of the movement that Ezra started turned into what we call synagogues. Do we have synagogues in the rest of the Old Testament we've been looking at? hasn't come up yet, hasn't it? But the synagogues came out of the ministry of Ezra. It was an opportunity for people to gather in one place. They didn't have to go all the way to Jerusalem. For their, they went to Jerusalem for their sacrifices, but they didn't have to go all the way down to Jerusalem to hear God's Word. And so they developed central places where they could open up the scrolls and they could read together and they could study the law of the Lord and do what Ezra did. And so the synagogues began. It was about a reformation of the heart that started with God's Word. It started with studying the law of the Lord, doing it, and teaching it. And that that system was passed on to others. And the Pharisees, they caught that. And they went, ah, this is good. We need to study God's word and we need to do God's word. We need to teach it to others. And so the Pharisees had their roots in the ministry of of Ezra ultimately. and, And the setting up of synagogues began. But these became people who were determined never to return to that time of idolatry and a blatant disregard for God's word. If you could accuse the Pharisees of one thing, it wasn't that, right? They weren't people that led people in worshiping Baal, like we saw throughout 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles. They weren't people that said, eh, you know, forget the law of Moses. No, they, they were passionately pursuing it. They weren't people that disregarded God's Word. But again, somewhere along the line, somewhere in those, those four centuries between the time of Ezra and the time of Jesus, those Pharisees stopped following Ezra's pattern. They still read God's word. They still pursued rules for life of of righteousness. But somewhere along the line, they started prioritizing the rules and their man-made righteousness instead of God's. They started pursuing their rules instead of God's word. And this is why Jesus asked them so often, "Have you not read?" They'd say something, and he'd go, "Have, have you not read?" I, I don't think that was a sarcastic, uh, you know, bite that was intended to insult them. I, I think he was appealing to them. That was one of their sayings. That was a part of the rabbinical teaching. Have you not read? There were, there were sayings like that that were used by the rabbis and Jesus used it in their lives and said, guys, get back to God's word. Haven't you read what it says? And he was appealing to them and their desire to know God's word and to do it. But they'd missed it. And they continued to miss it. And then they were a part in crucifying him. Jesus called them and said, have you not read? And that's the beauty of God's word that Ezra understood. That's what they needed to get back to, that Jesus was calling them to, that they had lost sight of. Reading and studying God's word is more than just following a set of rules. It's more than just going to church on Sundays and getting your little bed. God's word is living. It's active. And as we nourish ourselves on what God has written, we are participating actively in our life in Christ. When you saturate your life with God's word, you begin to discover the joy of knowing a God who declares, I'm with you. I'm with you. Father, we thank you for the life of Israel. We thank you for this man who had determination to accomplish one great task in his life that was composed of three steps. Studying your law, obeying and doing your law, and passing it on to others. Father, it's my prayer for these people here today, my friends. It's my prayer that, that each one of us would wholeheartedly pursue this same Drive the same task might we be people that had never said of us that that we didn't love your word Lord prevent us prevent us from going the other direction and turning it into a list of rules and do's and don'ts and, and becoming like the Pharisees who pursued their own righteousness rather than the righteousness of Jesus which is given to us but Lord might we love your word might we be people who obey your word my, my, we would we, we be people whose ministries are transformed, whatever the gifts that you've given to us, because we take your word and we pass it on to others in one form or another. Lord, please bless this day. I pray that your good hand would be upon us. Amen.
3: If you'd please stand.
0: this is love i can't explain this is mercy unreserved through your sacrifice so great i have peace that's undeserved for the battle has been won and i the sting of death is gone you're my solid rock and my salvation my steadfast hope that won't be shaken my soul will wait my soul will wait for you you're my comfort when i feel forsaken my refuge and my sure salvation My soul will wait, my soul will wait for you.
2: church for anybody that could go in there for a time of prayer so make that available also we have fellowship um, after this so if you join me in a closing prayer heavenly and loving gracious father we thank you for this place to come worship we thank you for the words that jeff spoke to us today as we go from here we ask that those words resonate in our hearts and we act upon those we allow the holy spirit to talk to us and again act upon the holy spirit's directions to us We love you, and we pray all this in son Jesus' precious and holy name and God's people would say, amen. Thank you.